Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The mists of time make it hard to see. It shrouds this story in some mystery. Long ago in a land far, far away, there lived a man and he lived in a strange land. He lived in a land with two letters. Maybe they were cavemen back then and they didn't say much. The land of Uz. You know, good caveman kind of name, Uz. And his name was Job. Job lived in Uz. They probably weren't cavemen, but it's fun to think of that that way. You know, like that Geico commercial with the cavemen? Maybe they look like that. But Job was a man living in the land of Uz. And it's this book of Job that's so weird, so bizarre, so ancient. The Hebrews called it wisdom literature. We just call it weird literature. And these mists of time which make it hard for us to see and hard for us to understand some of what's going on do not shroud in mystery the burning question that the book brings up. The question that the book brings up is all too familiar to all of us. It's all too familiar to uh, our experience in this life. It's all too familiar. It just cuts to the core of who we are, our experience, what goes on in this world, this life. We wished that it'd be shrouded in mystery, this question. And in a sense, it is at least the answer. But the question itself is crystal clear. The question itself, it's something that just screams from inside of us, screams from our souls. And we just are dying for an answer. Job is this book that begins with the story of a righteous, blameless man, it says. His name is Job, as you know. He lives in the land of Uz, as you heard. And he is a righteous, blameless man. And that's not by his own declaration. You and I might think, I'm a righteous, blameless person. But is our own declaration of our righteousness or blamelessness or goodness, any? is it worth anything? I mean, whose view of righteous and blameless and good actually matters? The communities? Your folks? Grandparents? Kids? Employer? Pastor? Whose view of you being blameless, righteous, and good matters? Well, for Job, the one that declared him blameless and righteous and good was God. That's a pretty good endorsement. How'd you like that on your tombstone someday? You know, when, when, when somebody has to write something about you, and as they 
place you in that six foot hole and they throw dirt on your face and then they go back to the church and they eat potato salad and tell funny stories about you. Remember that time that Steve fell off that thing and oh, that was hysterical. And maybe late at night there's a fog that forms in the cemetery and there's a solitary figure that shows up and with his finger He's done it before, and this time he does it again. He carves in stone an epitaph for you. And on that stone he writes, blameless, righteous. Man, that'd be cool, right? That's kind of what God has done with Job. I mean, he's not dead yet. In a moment he's going to wish he was, but he's not dead yet. He's blessed. He's super wealthy. He's got he's kind of a big operator for back then. In Job chapter 1 and if you don't know where the book of Job is, just open your Bible to like the halfway point and you'll probably end up in Psalms which we call Psalms cuz the P is silent, and I don't know why. It works that way. Kind of like knife or knee. Or, you know, all those weird words. And Psalms, peace, silent. And if you find Psalms, then just go, the other, just go backwards in your Bible and you'll find Job. It's the book right in front of Psalms. <coughs> and Job chapter 1 talks about Job and how awesome of a guy he is and how wealthy he was. And listen to this. He says this about him. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. And this man was blameless and upright. He feared God. And shunned evil. If the Bible wrote stuff about me, man, that'd be good things for the Bible to write about me. As you know, the Bible doesn't write that about everybody. I'd probably be more like Peter. You know, and once again, Steve said something stupid. You know, I mean, you all know that. You're here every Sunday. You know how that works. Once again, Jesus looked at Steve and said, really? Serious? That's what you had to say? But Job, blameless, upright, feared God, shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. Interesting numbers, seven and three. And he owned 7,000 sheep. That's a lot of sheep. 3,000 camels. That's a lot of camels. Think of all the water you need to water those camels. Because don't they have one of those built-in hydration packs? That's where the backpackers got it, that idea. 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys. Man, imagine trying to move them to the next pasture over. And a large number of servants. (laughs) They don't even number the people. It's like, eh. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. He was the greatest man, says the Bible, about him. And this is how we're introduced to Job. And it talks about his righteousness. It talks about his children. He actually would make sacrifices on behalf of his kids because his kids had this habit of having parties at the house regularly. They each had their own house. They were all wealthy themselves. And they would each have a party and they'd all go to their house and they'd party down. And then Job would be like, I hope that my kids and their partying didn't curse God and bring sin upon themselves. So I'm going to offer a sacrifice. Moms, you know what this, how this works, right? Dads were like, ah, eh, kids are kids. They're just stupid. But moms, they're like, please pray for the child, you know. 
And so all this is going on, and then there's this interesting scene. The second act. We've been introduced to Job. We've been introduced to us. And now we have this second act where we are transported to heaven. Don't you want to be transported to heaven? Especially before you die. That'd be kind of cool. We're transported to heaven. The narrator transports us to heaven. He has God sitting on his throne. And there's this divine council meeting. There's these divine beings that are meeting with God. (coughs) And one of them is called the Satan, the adversary. In Hebrew, it wouldn't be a capitalized Satan. It'd be the adversary. It'd be like we're transported to this courtroom view in heaven. And there's all these beings and it's fantastic and it's amazing. And God is holding court. And one of them is an accuser, the adversary, the Satan. That's what Satan means in Hebrew adversary, accuser, and he presents himself before God. And God says, hey, where you been? Where you been? You know, it's kind of like a meeting of the mob in New Jersey. Where you been? What's up? And Satan says, I've been roaming around the world. I've been looking. I've been checking out stuff in your creation. And God says, God says, hey, have you checked out Job? Now, Here's a quick tip. You don't want God to point you out to Satan. Just FYI, because we're going to, there's like 40 some chapters of what happens as a result of God pointing out Satan to Job to Satan. God points out Job to Satan, to the adversary, to the accuser. And you know what the accuser does? He doesn't accuse Job. He accuses God. He also accuses Job. It's kind of this crazy little accusing ninja move, you know, because he's like, he, he says this. He says, well, the only reason Job follows you is because you blessed him. The only reason Job likes you is because you, I mean, did you read the list, God? Did you hear 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel? Not to mention 500 donkeys. I mean, I'd follow you too if I had all that. And, and Satan says, take all that away from him and see if he still likes you. In fact, I'll bet you, God, I'll bet you that if you take that away from him, he won't follow you anymore. He'll curse your name. Now, what would you expect God to do at that moment? Well, if people have been praying for a hedge of protection around you, you would expect God to keep the hedge of protection up around you, correct? In fact, that's where we get that concept of a hedge of protection. It's from this book of Job. That's why it wasn't a concrete wall with razor wire and missile silos around it. It was a hedge of protection because they didn't have concrete walls and missile silos back then. They just had a hedge and that was good enough to keep Satan at bay. I'd rather have a concrete bunker if you're praying for me and my family and God's protection around us. You guys awake? Anyways, that was pretty funny. You would expect God to keep the hedge up. I mean, he's the one that pointed out Job. You'd expect God to go, no deal. I'm not going to bet. But for whatever reason, God thinks this is a good wager. How would you like to be Job? Man. How many of you have felt like Job at times? 
How many of you have thought maybe maybe God is kind of messing with me between him and Satan? Maybe there is some kind of showdown going on. Maybe there is some kind of battle I'm not aware of. And what happens with the narrator is he removes the mists of time and heaven and he pulls the curtain back and he lets us see this event that occurs in heaven. And we get this insider's view of what's going on. And we're all going, wow, that's cool. I wish that happened more often. Now, what's going on in Job in this book is that God allows Satan, the accuser, the adversary, to afflict Job. This first go around, he says, do what you want, but you can't touch the guy. So the first time around, he takes away the 7,000 sheep, the 3,000 camels, the 500 donkeys. He kills all 10 kids. And after all this, his wife comes to Job and says, why don't you just curse God and die? In other words, I'm not very happy with this marriage anymore. I think I'll be moving on. So she walks off and Job says... And we sing it sometimes at church. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, he doesn't curse God. He doesn't do what Satan thinks. And so Satan goes back and they have another throne room discussion. And the narrator pulls the the curtain for us once again. And we are whisked away into heaven. And God goes, ha, 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 I won the bet. Not exactly, but it's in the Hebrew that way. And Satan says, well, if he got sick, you didn't let me touch him. He still has his health. You know that saying, well, at least you have your health, right? So God says, that sounds like a bet. You're on. Man, pray this never happens to you. Pray you are never God's example of faithfulness. But then again, well, we'll get to that in a bit. Be careful what you pray for. Now, Satan comes and he afflicts Job with boils. He afflicts him with disease the guy is a mess his health's gone he's lost everything and the book transitions to these three buddies of job's and these three buddies of job's they start out really strongly one thing they do is they show up with a lot of food like people do when somebody dies well i don't know if they did i'm assuming they did because that's what you guys do when somebody dies, you show up at the house with lots of food. And they show up, and then it says that they sit with Job silently for seven days. Sit with Job silently for seven days. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever sat anywhere silently for seven days. Right? Seven days? Seven days of sitting in silence and just watching your friend like, you know, golly, these boils are just killing me. 
Anybody have some ibuprofen? Anybody have some? I mean, think of the medical stuff we have available to us. You know, he's got, he doesn't have Benadryl. There's nothing to help this guy. He's just stuck. And these guys sit silently for seven days. And then they start talking. Now, it's interesting. This book is not, it's not set in the land of Israel. It's set in the land of Uz. It's this far off land. It's predates Jewish history is what most scholars believe. Job and these guys lived before Abraham lived. That this is probably Genesis like 11 and a half. It's before Genesis 12. This is ancient story we have going on here. And the questions that the narrator wants us to wrestle with is one of them is this. And this is the question. This is the question that is so razor sharp in our minds. The answer is not so sharp, but the question is razor sharp. Is God just? You ever ask that question? Maybe not that way, but in some way you've asked, is God fair? Why does this happen to me? Is God trying to punish me? What's going on? Is God just? The second question is kind of like it. It's, does God run the universe on a strict principle of justice? Does God run the universe in a way that I can diagnose and understand and see so that if I do A, B, C, God does one, two, three? And the other question, how is Job's suffering to be explained? And it's so easy for us to personalize that, isn't it? How is my suffering to be explained? God, are you just? God, do you have a system, a formula, something that I can tap into to make sure life works for me? And how on earth do you explain my suffering? Some of you, these are really clear questions in your mind. And if they're not currently, just live a little longer. Now, it's interesting. We are being set up by these first few chapters of this book to think that this book is going to answer those questions. And guess what happens? It doesn't. I'm saving you the weeping and gnashing of teeth as you read the book and you're like, where is the answer? I'm saving that for you. I'm letting you know from the get-go that the answer isn't there. God doesn't give an accounting. God does not tell him. In fact, he doesn't even let him in on, well, okay, Job, what's going on? Is Satan and I got a bet. He doesn't even tell him that. If you knew that, would it make it a little easier to suffer? But Job doesn't even have that perspective. You, the reader, the hearer, the listener to the story, we have that perspective. Job is never told that. Now, it's interesting. I mean, ancient ancient Eastern wisdom is very similar to modern Western wisdom. Here's the wisdom of the ancient East. They believe that there's these two categories, and one of the categories is human action, and the other category is 
is God's response, God's justice, God's reaction to our action. And so the belief was this, that if you act wise and good, then God's response, God's justice, the universe will help you be successful and rewarded. That if you are wise and good, you will be successful and rewarded. This is ancient wisdom. But it also sounds really modern, doesn't it? We have different words for this today. We call it karma. It's not really that new of a word that's been around in the ancient East for a long time. But here in the West, we're starting to talk about what goes around comes around. The other half of that idea with human action is if you live evil and stupid... If you live an evil and stupid life, then God's justice, God's reaction, God's response is disaster and punishment. And some of you are thinking, yeah, that's totally what I believe. There's another way? Yeah, I totally believe that. If I'm wise and I'm good, then God will reward me and I'll be successful. If I'm evil and stupid, then there will be disaster and punishment. Duh. Well, that's what Job's three friends argue throughout the book. That's what Job's three friends argue again and again and again and again. They argue, Job, the reason you're suffering is you did something really wrong. You've been evil or stupid. And they actually go in and they create these scenarios of ways that Job has been evil or stupid. (laughs) And they said, therefore, you're being punished and disaster has come upon you. Makes sense, right? I mean, if that's your way of thinking about life, it makes perfect sense. The trouble is, Job responds to each of these three friends. There's these running dialogues that happen. It's all in poetry. And Job responds to each of these friends, and his argument is this. I'm innocent. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I didn't do anything else. I am. It started at the beginning of the book, people. I'm righteous. I'm upright, I'm blameless, I fear God, I shun evil. I'm innocent. The implication of his argument is that my suffering is not deserved. And his friends are all like, no, you're evil or stupid, you deserve it. He's like, I'm innocent, it's not deserved. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? You're experiencing suffering, disaster, illness, tumors grow, cancer kills, accidents happen. And isn't it just something deep down inside you that says, what did I do to deserve this? Ever heard that? Ever had that tape playing in your mind? Ever had those words come out of your mouth? What did I do to deserve this? You see, this ancient wisdom is just what's deep down inside our human hearts. We get what we deserve. So if we are wise and we're good, we will be successful and we'll be rewarded. But if we're evil and stupid, we'll be 
punished and experienced disaster. Trouble is, I mean, come on. We all know that's not how it works. How do you explain so much of this world? So much of the suffering, so much of the prosperity, so many of the things that you see go on regularly in this world, in this town, in this county, in this state. People who rise to prominence, to prosperity, to opportunity, and people who don't. And often you look and you go, why are they getting ahead? They're an evil, stupid person. And how come I'm not getting ahead or so-and-so's not getting ahead? Because they are wise and good. I mean, we know we've got too many examples in our own lives, in our own experience to say that this is not true. So, they're having this conversation and Job makes a final stand to his friends. And not just to his friends, to God. He says, God, you need to make account for what's going on. You need to tell me why I'm suffering. <laughs> Some of us, we've been in that territory, haven't we? He demands an explanation from God. And what's really cool with Job from Uz is he has that meeting with God. God comes down. And we're expecting an answer, aren't we? We're set up to think that there's going to be an answer. I'm set up as the reader to think, you know, God's going to go, all right, here's what's going on. Me and Satan had a bet. <laughs> Congratulations. I won the bet. Thanks, Job. You're awesome. Um, you know, I'm sorry I put you through that, but, you know, Satan kind of just really ticked me off that day in court, and so I'm like, whatever, game on, let's make this happen. You know. And God doesn't even begin there. God never tells him that. In fact, God goes on this whirlwind tour. In fact, it says he shows up in a whirlwind, and then he goes on this whirlwind tour of telling Job about creation and the universe. Hey, do you know how... Do you know how baby Bambi is born? I mean, Job, you haven't even seen the movie yet, but do you know how Bambi is born? Job, do you understand how stars are formed? Were you there when I made those things? Hey, Job, do you know how lightning and thunder work? <laughs> you know, and this is long before we had weathermen and women who could be wrong. 70% of the time and keep their job. Wouldn't, wouldn't you like that job? That's a good job. And so he didn't know how any of this stuff worked. And God goes on this whirlwind tour of, you don't know much, do you, Job? I mean, that's kind of the whole point of what God is doing with Job at this point in the book. You don't know much, do you, Job? That's not a helpful answer, God. Yeah. You know, like when you parent your children and you go, you don't know very much, do you, kid? The kid's like, yeah. well, you just wait and see. And we're like, 
dude, move out, feel free, you know. But I'm not giving you any money. The car stays here. Good luck with that. I mean, they might feel that there's some terrible, horrible, heinous injustice that we are doing upon them. We are being terrible parents. And they think, oh, I'm out of here. I hate this place. This is stupid. You're a moron. Nah, 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 nah. And then they go off to college and they come back and they're like, you're brilliant. Right? Now, why? It's called perspective. And what God is doing here with Job is he is giving him perspective. He says, you know what, Job? You don't know enough. In fact, then he gives him these two pictures of these these crazy creatures, behemoth and Leviathan. And he kind of is like the, the whole movement of the book at this point is he's saying the behemoth and the Leviathan, aren't they awesome? And we don't really know what they are. I mean, they could be mythical creatures that were part of mythology of the ancient world. And, you know, these were things that scared you, went bump in the night. You know, they could actually be real creatures that God is referring here. You know, some people think maybe he's talking about the Brontosaurus. That's the behemoth. And the Leviathan is like some giant sea serpent that no longer exists. And nobody knows, really, because the Bible doesn't tell us. It just says, were you there? But we know that behemoth and Leviathan show up in other texts in the Bible and also in other texts outside of the Bible. And so we know that the culture thought about these things. And we know that they saw these things as awesome and scary. And God's like, there are creatures, there are things that go bump in the night. And with my little finger, I can control them. Yeah, the world you live in is chaotic and scary and stuff can go wrong and can kill you. There's hurricanes and mudslides and wildfires and, and there's tornadoes and, and there's rain. And there's lightning and there's thunder and there's famine and there's plague and there's heat and there's humidity. There's all these things in the creation that I've created that's super, super complex, Job. And he says, I've pointed out how complex it is. And I've pointed out you don't have much perspective to call me down and give you an explanation. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you have the opportunity to run the world the way you want it run. So, Joe. Why don't you administer the world the way you think it should be done? Everybody who is good and wise, reward them and make them successful. And everybody who is evil... And stupid, bring about disaster and punishment on them. And with his newfound perspective, Job is starting to realize, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe that's harder than I thought it was. Because Job starts realizing, you know, there are things inside of everybody that look stupid and evil sometimes, and there are things even in stupid and evil people that look good and wise sometimes. And God is basically creating this argument of, Job, it's complex. This world you live in isn't set up for justice right now. This world you live in isn't set up for clear demarcations of reward and success. And at the very end of the book, not quite at the end, but at the very end of God's argument, he basically tells Job, 
in the midst of all this, are you going to trust me? (laughs) In the midst of your suffering, are you going to trust me? In the midst of this ugly, nasty, crazy world, you're going to trust me? Well, that's not the answer I wanted. And God's like, well, I'm sorry, that's what you're going to get. In the midst of the chaos of your life, are you going to trust me? And I think the reason this book is so resonating with me this time I'm reading it is because I'm 47 years old. Because I've lived more life. I've seen friends get cancer and die. I've watched people take their own life. I've done over 100 funerals in 13 years. I've went to bedsides at hospitals and nursing homes. I've sat with people at the mortuary. I've gone to gravesides. I've wept with people who've weeped. And when you're 27, you ain't done a lot of that. And I think that's why Job is resonating with me more. Another reason why it's resonating with me more is where our world is feeling like it's going. It feels like, you know, the church and people in the church, they're wise and they're good people, but it feels like the church is losing more and more ground and less and less traction. It just doesn't seem like it's prevailing and winning and succeeding. Then I read the Bible and I'm like, join the club. I mean, we've been going through Corinthians. It was only like a couple decades after Jesus died on the cross and did the Superman thing and pulled off Easter and and went to heaven. and, And they were a bunch of knuckleheads. And I'm like, there's hope for us. This is the way it's always been. It's been a struggle. It's been hard. There's suffering and there's pain. And in the midst of that, God is not going to give you answers. God is not on the hook. He didn't die on the cross so that you would be happy. Throughout it all, he says, are you going to trust me? So when I come out of this book, when I emerge from this mist of history, when I emerge from the throne room and I'm faced with that question, when I'm transported back to August of 2016 and facing Steve's little world and facing Ray's world and facing your world and seeing all around me. And I realize there's all these things going on and people are still suffering and bad things happen to good people all of the time. And the response from God is the exact same. I'm not going to tell you why. But I'm going to ask you, will you trust me? You know, I hope each of us can find our way to trusting him. And I'm not talking like in a, you know, fire insurance, get out of hell kind of trusting him, though that's kind of important. 
I'm talking in a, you were saved in Sunday school because the little blue-haired lady said, with the two flannel graphs, one was black and the other was gold. And on the black one, she put flames. And on the gold one, she put a mansion. And she said, today, you could die. And if you don't know Jesus, you're going here. The black and the flames. But if you know Jesus, you're going here. Now, who wants to pray the prayer? And you're like, oh, uh, yeah, I'm going to the mansions. Is this a stupid question? I'm only in second grade, and I can figure this one out. I'm talking about trusting Jesus in the midst of suffering, though you came to Christ as a second grader. And applying the gospel to your life on a day-to-day basis as you enter into suffering, as you enter into watching friends, family, spouse, kids, grandparents, great-grandparents walk through difficulty as you yourself get news, information, experiences that you never thought you should because you're good and you're wise. And you thought... That the Sunday school teacher, what she shared with you was true. You bought in when she said, just pray to Jesus and he'll make it better. And you've prayed to Jesus and it ain't getting better. And you grew up and you read Job. And you saw that the answer is not there. And you've been asking the wrong question. That God's asking you the question, will you trust me? Father, I pray that each of these people, all of us here, whatever it is we're walking through, you would just make this crystal clear to us. You don't have to answer us. You're not on the hook. You're God after all. You brought us into this world. You could take us out. You can make another just like us. But in the midst of all this, you are giving us the opportunity to trust, to grow. And so I pray that each person here who is in a season of suffering and loss and pain and grief, And those of us who are in between but could find ourselves there with just one phone call, one email, one text message, that we would trust you. Holy Spirit, make it so. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Trust him, for he is trustworthy. Amen.